Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Mark Allward, associate at Taylor McCaffrey LLP, the ELA member in Manitoba, Canada. Along with bringing you updates and critical events happening around the world, we are also fortunate to have the chance to dial in our local ELA lawyers that practice on the ground in these jurisdictions and are working daily to help their local clients move through these difficult times. Today, we are going to be chatting with two of our members in Alberta, Canada. Joining us today on the program are Gab Joshi Arnal and Chris Monfett, lawyers at Newman Thompson will be covering a topic of great interest and value to many of our listeners, collective bargaining, particularly with an overview of the collective bargaining process, along with strategies and tips helpful to employers. Welcome back to the program, Gab and Chris. How are you? Good. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here, Mark. Guys, let's get right to it. So first, why are we talking about collective bargaining today specifically? Chris, we'll start with you, please. Well, Mark, there's a lot of bargaining happening in Alberta right now, whether it's private businesses, post-secondaries, or just the broader public sector. In the public sector, bargaining at a lot of tables have already started and some tables have actually finished. The biggest table is the Alberta Union of Public Employees and the Government of Alberta table, which is just their general support services unit. They recently ratified an agreement for Alberta's public sector, which will undoubtedly have a trickle-down effect on a lot of other public sector units. We've also seen a rise in certifications lately, which means a lot of employers are going to be entering bargaining for the very first time. And employers need to start thinking about the bargaining process sooner rather than later. Both Gab and I have been involved in bargaining in the past and continue to bargain right now, whether directly at the table or in a support role. So we thought it might be helpful for employers to have more information about the process and maybe pick up some tips. So Chris, just piggybacking on something you said there about employers being proactive in thinking about bargaining, when is the best time for a unionized employer to start thinking about bargaining? Gab, we'll start with you here. Mark, preparation is fundamental to the bargaining process is how I'd start to answer that question. Whether there's a set timeline in terms of how many months, how many You know, if it's half a year or a year, I don't necessarily have a hard and fast rule, but I always start from the premise that you want to be as prepared as possible because that's a key to successful bargaining. Bargaining is a process where you're going to have to be, once you do hit the table, making a bunch of choices and in some cases having to move relatively quickly around those decisions and around those choices. So you want to make sure that you come to the table ready, equipped, understanding those choices, understanding the consequences, understanding that there's a shared interest between your table group, your stakeholders outside of the table, be that your management suite, the broader employer group, employee group, because the more you come to the table ready with that, the easier the process is gonna be as an employer. Now, if you did ask me from a timing perspective, In Alberta, the rule is generally that bargaining can open up, if we're talking about a renewal of an agreement, 120 days to 60 days from the expiry of the agreement. What I would generally do is be looking at bargaining prep at least a couple of months out from that, and maybe even more so if you're going to be dealing with a particularly difficult table to give yourself enough time to get ready, because the second that notice can be delivered, 
things can and may in fact move pretty quickly. So switching gears a little bit, let's talk about the content. So what are some of the things that an employer should be thinking about when you're starting that preparation, you know, six months in advance of the expiry of a collective agreement? So it seems really simple to state, but the most important thing is really to think about what you want to address in bargaining and to set your priorities. So some employers, especially those employers who are new to unionized setting, take a wait and see approach and end up reacting to proposals at the table. But it's critical early on to identify your priorities in bargaining and to set out the items that would be nice to have, those items that you really want to have, and those items that you need to have. Employers will also want to look back at their collective agreement history to see what kind of issues have come up in the past, whether this is interpretive issues or issues that have caused operational headaches for your HR or LR staff. And you'll want to consider whether you need to give any estoppel notice, which is just a notice that you're going to stop a past practice or a practice that the employer has been doing over the last few years. Some other important issues will be identifying your bargaining team. Bargaining is a really intensive process and you can't really do it off the corner of your desk. So an employer will want someone within the organization who's really focused on bargaining. That person can help with proposals, fill in rationale, talk to managers, and really be the person with the finger on the pulse within the organization. Then there are other considerations that I think we're going to touch on later in this podcast, like framing a communication strategy, figuring out the timing of certain different actions and planning for a possible labor interruption. So Chris, going off something that you said there with respect to a labor interruption. So obviously, we always hope that collective bargaining results in a collective agreement being reached between the parties without some sort of labor interruption. But labor interruptions do happen though. And Gab, we'll go to you here. Should employers be planning ahead of time for a strike or lockout, whether or not they think that that's a distinct possibility? Of course, the employers are going to have the best finger on the relationship between themselves and the union. So can you give me some thoughts on that, please? Generally speaking, Mark, I'm a big fan of plan for the worst and hope for the best. And that's my general approach to when I look at planning for labor interruption. In a lot of cases, you're not going to be dealing with tables where that's going to be on the radar. You'll have a pretty good sense, like you mentioned, before bargaining starts based on the general climate, based on what you're expecting the mandates from the union and from the employer to be. But what I would say is that it's better to come prepared because there is always that 1% chance that you do end up in a situation through a series of events where you are at the foot of a strike or lockout as a possibility. And where if you don't have that plan in place, then as an employer at the table, you might start to make decisions that are driven by self-generated pressures around not going on strike or not having a lockout. Whereas if you come to the table with a plan in place for that worst case scenario, then you feel less of that self-generated pressure and you can continue to make those informed decisions based on that preparation that you've done ahead of time. Chris, can you give us a little bit of information as to the legal framework for collective bargaining in Alberta? Sure, Mark. In Alberta, the bargaining framework is set out in the Labor Relations Code, or if you're a public sector employer, in the Public Sector Employee Relations Act. Now, I'm not going to just read the code to you, but I'll give you a little bit of an overview. 
the first step, like Adam mentioned, is the notice the bargain is served, where the parties have to set out their bargaining committee members and just signal to the other side that they're ready to start bargaining. Once the notice the bargain is served, it triggers a few different timelines. The first is that the parties have to have an initial meeting within 30 days and then exchange their first proposals within 15 days of that first meeting. I can tell you that some employers get overwhelmed with these timelines, but in our experience, the timelines are often extended. Both parties are just busy and need to find dates in their calendar that work for the entire committee. So it, it would be really rare to see a strict enforcement on these timelines. After the parties have bargained, the next step is usually mediation. Mediation can be informal or formal. For those employers subject to essential services regime, formal mediation can only occur once an essential services agreement is approved or one of the other essential services requirements are met. After formal mediation ends, the mediator can make a recommendation for an agreement or they can end mediation without a recommendation, which is just called writing out. After this, there's a cooling off period, which lasts for a couple of weeks. And during this time, one party usually applies for a strike or a lockout vote. The vote is an application to the board. And if the vote is successful, the result is good for 120 days. That party can then serve a strike or a lockout notice on the other side that they will be striking or locking out with 72 hours of notice. And Mark, I'm going to jump in on Chris's description here. One thing I did want to highlight that goes back to my point about preparation is that all of this can happen really quickly. So as Chris mentioned, there are some timelines in there, but once you get that notice served, you could get pushed to the table fairly quickly. You could hit impasse fairly quickly. There's no set timeline to that. And from the end of mediation, you're looking at a period of a little bit more than a couple of weeks before you could be in a strike or lockout situation. So that just, again, reinforces the importance of making sure that you're coming into that process, into that 120 to 60 day window when the agreement is open, ready to go. That's a good additional point. I want to circle back to something that Chris had said at the outset about how we're seeing a lot of new bargaining certificates and, and newly unionized employers and newly unionized employees. Gab, are there any special rules for those newly unionized employers who are bargaining their first collective agreement? So like a number of other jurisdictions in Canada, we've got what's called a first contract regime in Alberta. The first contract regime changes the rules a little bit for policy-related reasons around collective bargaining. What I mean by that is that generally the approach is that the parties are doing it on their own. There's this big emphasis on free collective bargaining, but the first contract regime is in place because of a recognition at policy that a union finds itself in a more vulnerable position in that first contract scenario. What that means practically is that the legislation gives our labor board a little bit more ability to intervene in the process than it normally would. What the board can do in some situations, and a lot of this depends on how that first contract is going. So this isn't going to be one size fits all. And I want to stress that it's really going to be based on the flow of your bargaining in that first agreement, because the board's trying to tailor those two competing policy interests of free bargaining and that issue about the balance of power with the union. 
but the board might do something like direct that bargaining happen in a particular time frame. They might say, okay, now's the time a mediator needs to be appointed. They might refer the matter to what's called enhanced mediation, which is a little bit more of a pointed, heavier, I'd call it mediation process. And in very, very exceptional cases, they might say the matter has to go to arbitration. So those are some of the things that the board could do. But again, it's all going to depend at the end of the day on how bargaining proceeds and employers need to, therefore, in that first contract scenario, be careful about how they approach bargaining because they might not necessarily want to create a record or be in a situation where the board looks at the record and says, no, this is the one where I need to go to enhanced mediation or, you know, this is such where I need to go to first contract arbitration. Thanks, Gab. So you talked a little bit there about going to mediation or or arbitration. So Chris, I wonder if you can hop in and just elaborate on that a little bit. So if an employer and the union is not able to reach a collective agreement for a first contract, can you walk us through that mediation and or arbitration process a little bit? Yes, absolutely. So mediation doesn't matter whether it's a first contract negotiation or if it's an established relationship. The parties usually end up in mediation one way or another. The first contract regime, like Gab said, does provide the opportunity for arbitration for certain cases that the board deems necessary. So while it's a possibility for a first contract to end up in interest arbitration, it is extremely unlikely. Prior to some more recent changes in the code, it was a lot easier to reach interest arbitration for a first contract negotiation. And newly unionized employers, even now, will have the unions kind of tell them and try to trick them into stating, if we don't have an agreement by X date, that they're going to apply for arbitration. And this tends to make employers uneasy because once it goes to arbitration, the result is really out of their hands. However, like Gab said, the way the first contract regime is set up doesn't automatically lead to arbitration and employers don't have to be as wary as the union might suggest. If the board chooses to intervene, it will usually be mediation first, then maybe setting some harder bargaining deadlines or having the parties deliver their final offer, things like that. The board will only really order arbitration if there's nothing else they think will work. And if one of the parties is being completely unreasonable at the table to the point where they've committed an unfair labor practice. So first contract negotiations is a lot more similar to regular negotiations than I think a lot of employers realize. Gab, going back, you talked a little bit about essential services regimes. Can you highlight some of the key features of those? So again, Mark, this is one of those spots where Alberta is very similar to a lot of provinces, but also a little bit different, like the first contract piece. We have an essential services regime. What that is meant to capture are situations where you're dealing with bargaining units that provide what are deemed essential services. So broadly speaking, our legislation defines that as a service where the interruption would endanger the life, personal safety, or health of the public, or where the service is necessary for the maintenance and administration of the rule of law or public security. Our process is unique in part because unlike in other jurisdictions, it's your foot in the door to mediation. You have to deal with essential services if you're an essential services employer before you go to mediation, whereas in other jurisdictions, I know it would be after. 
how our process works is there's an initial election where you have to decide I'm an essential services employer, but do I have essential services really or no in that bargaining unit? Because there are many examples of employers who are deemed essential services employers, but the group of employees that they're dealing with in that unit might not do essential services. You also have to ask, is there a possibility that the work could be performed by non-union employees or could it be done by replacement workers? And if you say yes to any of those options, then you can prepare what's called an exclusion or an exemption request from the employment standards regime. You apply for that. There's a form for it online. It is a fairly involved form. So you, as an employer, will want to take some time to review that before you go ahead. Alternatively, you might be in a spot where you say we've got essential services and we're going to use our employees to provide those essential services in which case you're going to get into negotiating what's called an essential services agreement. That'll deal with things like staffing of those essential services in a strike or lockout. Biggest thing I can flag for employers on that front is those agreements can take some time to negotiate. So when you're thinking about bargaining, when you're thinking about the timing of things, just make sure to keep in mind that that process may take a little bit of time as you go through your planning. So when we're talking about some of those tools in collective bargaining, Chris, can you give us some ideas as to some of those tools that may not be utilized as frequently as they should by employers? Absolutely. And we mentioned it a little bit earlier, but one of the most underappreciated tools is just communications. It's really important that an employer be able to get their message to their employees kind of unfiltered by the union messaging. Whether this is rationale for certain proposals, trying to precondition employees for what might happen at bargaining, or just being able to correct misinformation coming from either employees or the union or other sources. Employers need to know that once they are unionized, most of the messaging around bargaining comes straight from the union or the bargaining committee. These people are usually a little bit more invested in the process than the general employee population. And they might withhold certain information, might not share what the employer said at the table, and they may push some matters at the table that the general membership just doesn't really care about. So it's important to be able to have that line of communication with the employees. Now, it's also equally important that these communications are drafted carefully. If not, there's a very real prospect that a union will file an unfair labor practice complaint. So you have to be careful about the communications but it's a very important tool and employer's arsenal. So Chris, you were just mentioning about those conversations between management and the employer and the employees in the bargaining unit. So Gab, how should an employer direct those managers and members of the employer side of things to interact with employees during the bargaining process? Mark, that's a good question about the role of managers during bargaining. It goes back, there's a lot of myths around bargaining related to things like employers need to be neutral, employers not being able to talk about bargaining, and employers not being able to answer questions about bargaining. And jumping off on Chris's points about communication just now, bargaining is fundamentally not a secret process, and your managers can play an important role in that communications process that Chris was mentioning earlier. There's an interest in ensuring that everyone has accurate information about the issues, 
about the status of bargaining, the proposals put forward, and the bargaining process generally. And that's where your managers can be invaluable, is in making sure that everybody that's employed in the bargaining unit or otherwise understands what's going on with respect to those and other points tied into bargaining. And they're also a great source of information with respect to hearing where some of the concerns might be coming from about the positions that the union or the employer might be taking at the bargaining table. So then what if there's an area that's just a plain old non-starter for an employer? How can an employer bargain in good faith, but maintain that position? So a lot of people have this misconception that good faith bargaining always results in the parties kind of meeting in the middle or compromising their positions. And that's just not true. Hard bargaining is allowed within the labor relations code regime. You don't have to give in or compromise on things that you think are vitally important to your organization. Now, like anything, there's a line to this. An employer cannot push an illegal or a manifestly unreasonable demand to impasse. But the most important consideration in avoiding an bargaining in bad faith complaint is just to have a rational and informed discussion at the table. That means being prepared to defend your position with a logical explanation. And a party can't just say, we don't want to do that. If you're going to push something to impasse, you have to have a really good operational reason for doing so. And you have to be able to explain why the union's position is not workable within your operations. I liked your comment about hard bargaining is not necessarily unfair, Chris. That That's very apt. This has been a really interesting discussion. Thank you so much for your time today, Gavin, Chris. Thanks so much, Mark. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. I'd invite anybody who's listening and who has any follow-up questions about bargaining in Alberta to reach out to Chris and I. Like Chris mentioned earlier, we're both doing a fair bit of bargaining in the province right now and are more than happy to field questions, either of us or any of the other lawyers at Newman Thompson. If you'd like to connect with Gab Joshi Arnal or Chris Monfett, you can find their bios by clicking on their names in the description of this podcast. Please visit www.ela.law to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers, and on-demand content from our online library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Mark Allward. Thanks for listening.